Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate. Don't forget, I have two other podcasts out there, From John to Justin, which releases every single Friday, and Canada's Great War, which releases every single Sunday. If you like, you can email me at craig at CanadaEHX.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram. Just do a search for Bairdo37. Today I'm speaking with Jeff Minette. He wrote the book Pinkertons and the Hunt for Simon Gunanut. And it's a fantastic book because it looks at the Pinkertons and their hunt for this man who supposedly killed two people in the early 1900s. I'm not going to give too much away, but... It's a very interesting story and one that I really enjoyed reading. So we're going to get right to it. What kind of inspired you to start writing this this fantastic book about uh, the Pinkertons and and their hunt for Simon? Well, it's a fascinating story. Um, It's one of the great crime stories of British Columbia. Um, This um, man who was accused of these double murders and he spent 13 years out in the... uh, in the, in the mountains and lakes and forests and wilderness, uh, while the police searched for him very vigorously. And then he um, gave himself up in 1919 and was tried for murder. So it's, it's a fascinating story with great characters and drama and, and, and um, all the question marks and good crime story, like, did he do it? Um, who was helping him? Who was not helping him, etc. So it, it, it's, it's a fascinating story. And I was interested in the area anyway, because my first book, um, the biography of a pioneer who went up in 1900. So um, it's, it's, a, it's a great story. Um, what was the research like for this? Because, you know, it is only a century ago, so it's not like we're dealing with something, you know, 2000 years ago, but was it tough to find a lot of the information, especially with to do with the Pinkertons, with their their uh, dispatches and their their entries related to the search? Well, it's it's all about research, isn't it? And it's all about <laughs> enjoying research, uh, which I do. Um, I was in the archives in British Columbia doing research for my first book and um, came across these reports written by the Pinkertons operatives which really have not seen the light of day since they were left there um, 100 years ago. Um, there was one biography of Simon Gunnar in 1980, and the author had read the reports, but most people haven't seen them. And they give a fascinating, to me, a fascinating glimpse of life in Hazelden at the time and, and the search. So with the reports in hand, uh, I was able to um, develop the idea and dig further research into the letters between the policemen in Hazelton and in Victoria and some memoirs and some diaries and bit by bit you you get the information that that you are looking for. Uh, Do you feel like it's a unique story to tell just because when we think of the Pinkertons we think of you know they they were like part of the Secret Service I think for Lincoln Um, they were this legendary force who was always able to like catch the people that they were after but they never did catch Simon you know they they certainly (laughs) tried they they 
tried desperately to find this guy, but no luck. Um, so it was kind of interesting to see that angle of, of this sort of investigation that wasn't successful for them. Oh, very interesting. Um, and like most myths and legends, um, it, it isn't always true. They didn't always get that, their man. Um, uh, famously, they chased Butch Cassidy and Sundance Kid. I'm sure you remember the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and they didn't actually catch them. They chased them out of the country, but they didn't catch them. Um, so they didn't catch everyone. And, and one sh should say, um, and one shouldn't ignore the fact about Pinkertons, they had a twofold reputation. The first was as a detective agency, and before the First World War and um, cooperation between police forces, they were one of the few the collection of our criminals across borders and across boundaries. So they were used by Scotland Yard in England and they were um, used by many states um, because the criminals, of course, don't know borders or boundaries. Um, and so they were very useful as detectives and as detective agency. They also had a reputation for being strike busters. Uh, they were used by employers to break strikes. Uh, so they had this twofold reputation um, as being helping catch criminals, but also we might not think quite such a a happy reputation of, of helping bus unions and bus strikers. Mm -hmm. um, one thing I wondered about when I was reading this was just how nobody figured out that these guys were hunting Simon. I mean, I know they had mm -hmm. the cover of they were looking for a coal mine, you know, they were prospecting, but over the course of all the time that they were there and all the time they talked to people about Simon and how did nobody really figure out that these guys <laughs> were hunting for Simon? <laughs> Well, that's one of the questions I ask in the book uh, <laughs> towards the end is, is, is who did guess they were in fact, um, if not Pinkertons, they were detectives. Um, and as you say, um, they were interested in Simon and they wrote a lot of letters and most prospectors wouldn't write, be writing so many letters. <laughs> so who, who, if anyone did guess? Um, if anyone did guess, they kept it to themselves. Um, because there's a policeman in town called James Maitland Dougal who arrived in 1909 who kept a daily diary and he was very alert to the fact there might be the possibility of their being tumbled and so he kept his ears open and he um, did write back to his bosses in Victoria saying yeah I don't think they've been found out yet um, <laughs> they're still secret so it, it wasn't an open secret um, mm. or, uh, uh, that people knew about did people suspect? Well, I, mean, uh, I, I have to think maybe some of them did. Um, um, there was the um, postmaster who was also the leading merchant in town, who also on the side quietly bought furs that Simon had shot. And, you know, here are two prospectors coming in with, to collect mail and they sent mail once or twice a week over a year. Uh, <laughs> I would have been suspicious. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Uh, and then looking at Simon, when we think of somebody who's accused of shooting two people, we think of, you know, this terrible person. But in reality, Simon was extremely well-liked in the area. And uh, and you, you do touch on your book, but do you think that was a big reason why it took so long? And it was only when he finally turned himself in uh, that, that he was finally, you know, caught, I guess, uh, because he was so well-liked uh, in the area? Yes, um, people were very sympathetic to him. 
he was well liked. He, he, he was a merchant. He, he got on with people. Um, and the person, the first person he murdered was um, putting a charity in a bit of a thug. Um, he had a very bad reputation um, for just being not a desirable person. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you an example, there's one time when he had um, a fight with someone, a fist fight with someone, and they went to make up afterwards and shake hands. And when he went to shake hands in his hand, he had a rock and he hit the, the man around the head with it, knocked him down. So, you know, that isn't fair game. <laughs> he also had a reputation for abusing women. Mm-hmm. Um, and how much of that is rumor, how much it is gossip, but he had his reputation. So people weren't too sorry when Macintosh was, was shot. Now, he, most people felt that he had it coming and they weren't going to give Gunnar up the police anyway. Mm-hmm. So um, I think come 1919, when he did surrender to the police, um, I think people um, thought that there weren't any witnesses around and people wouldn't prosecute him very hard and he'd get, get off, which he did. Uh, but there were witnesses around still. So um, yes, there's a huge sympathy for him in the district. Uh, so after such a long time, I think, it, like you said, it was about 13 years where, he, you know, Simon finally turns himself in. Why does he turn himself in? I mean, he probably could have just lived the rest of his life. Nobody really seemed to care about this murder. Everybody was helping him in some way. So why did he eventually decide like, okay, I'm going to turn myself in for this crime that, you know, by that point was 13 years in the past. Mm-hmm. And before the first world war and the mm-hmm. first world war closed, closed many doors of the past and changed so much. He had a family um, and his children were growing up and he wanted them to have um, an education and to have lives not on the run themselves. Mm -hmm. Um, So the reason he gave was he wanted to do it for his children, to get them an education. And then looking at this story, or not story, but uh, I guess, yes, story. is it kind of like you look at it as a struggle sometimes between, you know, the, the new settlers and the indigenous living in British Columbia. And does that kind of play into it a bit? Um, because, you know, they, like with Macintosh and what he was accused of and things like that, this kind of battle between the indigenous and the settlers in this early time is as these two cultures are trying to like trying to find a way to coexist. Yes, this gets to the very heart of why the police tried so very hard to catch him, because um, the people in Hazleton were very sympathetic, um, and certainly the old settlers got on most of the time pretty well with the indigenous peoples. They learned their languages, they married them, they, mm-hmm. they knew the laws, and, and you know the people on the ground um, tried to get on. Um, new settlers weren't quite so um, uh, accommodating. Um, but the um, people there tried to make it work. On the other hand, um, the government arrived in about 1900 in a bigger way and things started getting tense. You had the first policeman in town in 1900. You had the, um, the first hospital and yes, that helped people, but still upset old ways. You had new fishery regulations. You had um, the government coming in and making more of a statement. 
of a presence and an indigenous people, the Gikzam, um, felt aggrieved by this. And some of them started taking the law into their own hands. So I think the government really, in Victoria really tried to uh, maintain the supremacy of colonial law. And I think, personally, I think that is why the government tried so very hard to catch him, even though many people were telling them, as well as common sense, that they were never going to catch government. <laughs> and they, they never did, I guess. He, he, let, he let himself be caught. <laughs> That's right. Um, was there anything in your research that you found that was really surprising to you or like a favorite aspect of, of what you discovered about this, uh, this story? One of the surprising um, things that I came across was the degree to which the um, people in Hazleton were prepared to not just be sympathetic, but also to help mm -hmm. um, Gallanut. Uh, the missionary in Kistiox um, had acquired a reputation, wrongly or rightly, it's hard to tell, of um, being in contact with Gallanut most of the time. Um, the, even the doctor in town um, attended Gun and Lute's um, children when they were ill um, and was off so, so very surprised afterwards um, when, he, when he was told about it. Um, the um, merchants in town bought furs they knew came from Gun and Lute. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is, this is one of the surprising things, how much they were prepared actually to do things to help. Absolutely. Uh, I think probably my favorite part of the book was in the end where you're where Simon's kind of talking about the close calls that he had. And I think there was one point where he was like literally on the street and he saw, you know, I think it might have been the, the agents walking towards him or, or somebody that was looking for him walking towards him. Were you surprised by how close it did come to, to him being caught in cases where he was only like a few hours ahead of them uh, as they're moving up the, the telegraph uh, stations and everything? I was a little surprised they got that close, um, <laughs> actually. Um, so that, that was a bit surprising. Um, he had a reputation for being a very fast traveler. And if he was out in the, in the lakes and the mountains and he saw signs that there were police anywhere near, he had the reputation for being 60 miles away before an hour had passed. <laughs> um, he was a very fast movie traveler. He's, Travelers, they traveled up on border, they traveled on the way to the, um, the, the east. I think one rumor, and again, you know, one has to be slightly cautious about mm -hmm. rumors, one rumor or one story that he came down to Vancouver on the boat once. Um, and again, you know, true or not, I don't know. Um, <laughs> uh, the the Pagan agents reported on gossip and rumors, and you never do know what is true, what isn't true. Um, so uh, I was surprised how close they came at times. About 1912, 1913, I think Hunt died down completely. Um, mm. the, the Attorney General changed and he was in, very much um, in favor of continuing the pursuit. The police chief in Victoria died. So I think the um, bit of common sense took over and they realized that just post the reward, uh, get the word out and maybe something will happen uh, and so what um, and I think everyone calmed down a bit um, <laughs> uh, after then. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, so you wrote this book, you've written previous books. Um, what, what next are you going to kind of dive into? What story are you looking at or, or hoping to research uh, next about uh, something in Canadian history? Well, um, Kate Press, who published Pinkertons and Hunt, Simon Gunnernut, are publishing my next book in the fall of this year. Um, and this is, uh, again, stemming from the research I did in the archives, mostly before COVID um, mm. struck. Um, it, it's called Hazelton um, um, uh, Murders on Moschina. And this is about, about a dozen murders that took place in and around Hazelton between 1814 and, sorry, 1844 and 1914. Um, uh, and I'm not sure if Hazelton is any more of a murderous place than anywhere else <laughs> in the province. <laughs> it seems to be a lot of very interesting murders uh, in, in and around Hazelton. Um, so I, I've looked at these murders and um, written a book about them. Well, that's Jeez, coming out of the that's coming out that's, in the fall. <laughs> that's surprising that such a small place that would have, <laughs> I mean, it's it's spread over the case of 60 years. It's not like it's, you know, in two yeah. years, but still that's quite, even for Canada, like the, the that's pretty, there's quite a few murders for such a small area. Absolutely. Well, that, that's that's what intrigued me. Um, <laughs> it, it's a beautiful place. Beautiful mm-hmm. people live there. Um, um, and for about 60, 70 years, it was the most, um, probably the most important place in, in northern British Columbia, in the interior of northern mm-hmm. British Columbia, because it was the place where, after 1891, steamers reached upriver. Uh, it was a place where the coastal people, the coastal indigenous people traded with the Wet'suwet'en um, and inter- interior indigenous people. Um, and it was a place from which supply, to which supplies were brought upriver and then taken on by mule train to the um, uh, telegraph operators um, after 1900, to the miners and prospectors in the Omanika mountains um, and to the increasing number of settlers in the Barclay Valley. So it really was a very, even though small, very small, it was quite an important place. Um, and um, a lot of people came through there and um, some never came out. I guess the, the last question is, um, if people are interested in the book and they're, if they're interested in you, they want to reach you or they want to uh, find the book, where, where can they do that? Well, um, my, I always give the first plug to independent bookstores mm-hmm. um, because they all, all struggle these days and um, they should, should all be supported. But then there's the Caitlin Press webpage, that's caitlin-press.com, amazon.ca, uh, um, Amazon.com hasn't quite got it yet, but Amazon CA. Um, those are three uh, places to, to, get, to buy it. Um, so um, feel free and go and enjoy reading about crime in Northern British Columbia. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And if you did, please leave a rating and review. If you like, you can reach me through email at craig at canadaehx.com. You can also visit my website where you'll find hundreds of articles on Canada's history as well as all my podcast episodes. Just go to CanadaEHX.com. And don't forget you can support the podcast through Patreon. There are multiple tiers to choose from, all with great benefits. You can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just like all of these wonderful patrons have, and I apologize if I mispronounce any names. Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W, Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Randall McCallum, 
Diane Wade, Laurieanne Kirby, Gary Dolovich, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Rawa, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. If you want, you can find me on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash CanadianHistoryX. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-E-A-I-R-D. And you can find me on Instagram. Just go to Bairdo37. Thanks. We'll see you again next time.